Welcome to Bible study this morning as we kick off kind of a continuation of what we started last summer, which is going through the, the Gospel of Luke. It's so welcome to all of you here in the gym. A welcome to all listening in the St. Louis area on AM850 KFUO and worldwide on KFUO.org. Just a few news and notes before we begin the Bible study. We do have a handout on the Bible stack in the back there by the, the bleachers. If anyone would like a handout, if you would like to just use your own Bible, we're going to the Gospel of Luke chapter six. And we left off last summer, all the way back in last August, we went back and checked. We left off with John the Baptist and uh, his followers coming to Jesus with some questions for Jesus. And so we pick up after that, starting uh, in Luke 7, verse 36. And this scene in Luke, uh, the next 15 or so verses, I think is one of the most beautiful scenes uh, in the entire Gospels because it paints such a clear picture of how the forgiveness of sins works and on whose account those sins are forgiven. It, it's truly a, a remarkable account, especially when you consider the historical factors at play. So let's begin in verse 36, that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, uh, you may have heard this before, but to eat with someone in these days, that's a big honor. That's basically welcoming you into your home, almost considered a family sort of relationship. You didn't just share meals with anybody, but this, the indication is here that this is probably a bit of a larger meal, maybe even uh, a Friday meal before a Sabbath day. But as we see with the woman who comes in, there seems to be a number of guests at this meal of whom Jesus is specifically invited to be a part of this. And this wouldn't have been unusual. If you had a rabbi come to your meal, I, you often would have people cycling through because they'd want to hear what he had to say. He was a teacher, one who would give instruction or wisdom. And so this idea that it's just a small intimate gathering is not necessarily so accurate. It's more of a, I would say, probably a larger scale sort of event and one where perhaps many people had kind of would cycle in and out over the course of the evening. And notice oftentimes, what was the Pharisees complaint that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners? And here he eats with Pharisees. So lest anyone thinks Jesus would not be willing to eat with even a Pharisee, when he's invited in, he says, I'm, I'm game for it. So he comes to the Pharisee's house and behold, that's good. Anytime you see behold, it's do in the, in the Greek. It's kind of like a, whoa. It's kind of like a, in California would say, dude, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, woman of the city, does that not just mean she's an urban dweller? <laughs> It does not just mean that she, you know, lived in an apartment downtown next to the arch. This was likely someone who was a woman of the night, we'll just say. Likely a prostitute, or at the very least, maybe an adulteress, or someone who was of obvious ill repute. Everyone would have known that this woman is not the sort of well-respected, righteous person that you want to have come to your table. And she's described as a sinner. That when she learns Jesus is reclining at the Pharisee's house, she brings an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears 
and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, there's several things here that are at play. The first is a flask, an alabaster flask of ointment. This, the indication here is this is a pretty expensive thing that she's brought into the house. That this isn't just what you picked up at Walgreens as a last minute gift for someone before Christmas, you know, one of those packs with the different deodorants or sprays, right? This is, this is, this is nice stuff. This is something that would have cost a great deal of money. And the other part of this that is immediately would be noticeable to those there was that she wets his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. Again, anyone of, of, well, to do respectability wouldn't let their hair down and certainly would not be washing feet with that hair. Now, in those days, uh, there was not asphalt or concrete. And if you've ever seen a kid after he's run around on concrete or asphalt, their feet are dirty enough. But imagine there being no asphalt, no concrete, and it's just dirt. And when you walk around, guess what happens to your feet? They get dirty. Uh, and the best you can hope for is they're just dusty. In these days, there's a lot of animals, <laughs> not a lot of great sewage systems. And so to clean one's feet is, is a sign of not only humility, but it's also, as we'll see later on in this account, an act of hospitality. In Genesis 18, all the way back in Genesis, when the men visit Abraham, one of the first things he says is get some water so that they may wash their feet. And so you have this woman who is a sinner, a woman of the city, and she's standing next to Jesus, standing behind him, weeping and cleaning his feet with this ointment, with using the hair of her head. And she kisses his feet and anoints them with the ointment. A couple of things that kind of jump out to me when I read something like this. First, how did she afford this ointment? With money. How did she earn her money? Sinfully, as Bud says. And you stop and think about that for a moment. And you can imagine the Pharisee's face. This is one of those moments we'd love to see the face on the Pharisees. Like the shepherds in the field watching over their flocks at night. When that angel of the Lord appeared, I'd love to have just seen their face. Just the, what in the world is going on? Here's another one of those moments where that Pharisee must just be thinking, how is this man just standing here letting this happen? Doesn't he know what sort of person this is? Doesn't he know how she could have possibly afforded that ointment? Doesn't he know how unclean her lips are? And yet he doesn't kick her or get her away when she tries to kiss them, no. And so the Pharisee, his reaction, uh, when he sees this, he says to himself in verse 39 there, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now that statement, if this man were a prophet, it's a contrary to fact clause. And in Greek, the indication is that if you say something, start something like this, it means you don't believe it to be true. So by saying, if this man was a prophet, what he is saying is this man ain't no prophet. <laughs> there is this rabbi, this person that is causing all this uproar. If he were a man of God, he would have known what sort of 
woman this is, how unclean she is, how unclean he now is by accepting her. Uh, the other thing I'm reminded of is another account of when Jesus's feet get washed. And why I bring this up is because depending on which commentator you read, some try to draw uh, a direct link to it. And I don't know if it's, there's a strong enough textual reason to do so. But what's the other time that perhaps in the Gospels, well, not perhaps in the Gospels, that uh, Jesus has his feet washed? John, yes. Mary, yes, sister of Martha, the Martha and Mary, Mary, also sister of Lazarus. She, in that account in John chapter 12, also anoints Jesus and washes his feet with her hair. Now, are there some similarities? Yes, but I would argue that you shouldn't draw a direct one-to-one -one comparison, that this is the same event or even necessarily the same. Could it be? Okay, it could be, but I, I don't necessarily... I think there's a strong enough textual reason to say directly, this is Mary, sister of Lazarus here in Luke 7, just as it is in John 11 and on, in John 12. But we have this contrary to fact statement made by this Pharisee. And so Jesus picks up on this. You know, he, Jesus isn't dumb. He hears what people are grumbling or mumbling about him. And so he says to the man, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, this is interesting because very rarely in the Gospels does Jesus call a Pharisee by his first name. Now, there's only a couple that get such a distinction. Nicodemus is one, and now Simon here in Luke um, chapter 7 is another. I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. Jesus says a certain moneylender who had two debtors, one who owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? This uh, parable that he tells, this short parable, has three characters. And I think we need, it, it's important to look at it from the perspective of each of the three characters and what the point is here in this parable. You have the creditor and you have debtor A and debtor B or debtor one and debtor two. Now, a denarii was about a day's worth of wages. So 50 denarii is nothing to, nothing to, you know, slush off about. But 500 denarii is over a year, almost a year and a half's worth of, of wages. And so you have these two debtors and this creditor, this money lender. And you see in this parable the, the direct um, difference in their response, at least as, as it's implied by Simon. And Jesus will acknowledge that Simon understands what he's saying here rightly. But before we get too far into that, I want to ask, oh, what other sort of three-pointed or three-character parables uh, can you think of that Jesus tells in Luke that perhaps makes a very similar point? Yes. Yep. You're absolutely right, Don. The prodigal son. The thing about the prodigal son, we have a very similar situation in a much lengthier parable there, where Pharisees and or Pharisees were grumbling and scribes were grumbling about Jesus doing what? Eating with and welcoming tax collectors and sinners. And I don't want to draw too much of a again a one-to-one -one comparison, but I think it's good to have that parable in mind 
when we're when we read this first parable because you have really kind of an identical sort of reasoning going on in the, in the minds and in the in the head of those who hear this parable. So uh, Jesus asked Simon when they could not pay, he canceled the debt. Now, which of them, excuse me, will love him more? Simon's answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, what here does Simon understand pretty directly and rightly? You know, it's not always harp on the Pharisees. Sometimes they get an answer right. What does he understand rightly? Who will love him more? He understands immediately that when one is given a great deal, naturally one shows more appreciation, more love, more understanding. You know, it, it, someone gives you a quarter, you might say, yeah, thanks. Someone gives you $25,000, you might say a little more than, gee, thanks. Right here, uh, Simon understands rightfully that when a large debt like that is canceled, well, then the love one should have for the one who canceled it should be great. Now, this is a little bit of foreshadowing because if you had to guess <laughs> which of the two men Simon thinks he is, what do you think it's going to be? Zero or maybe 50. Maybe I'm not a perfect Pharisee. There is that one time I, I, I worked a little too much on Saturday, but certainly not the debt that this woman carries. Certainly not the debt that these sinners carry with them. And so turning towards the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. <laughs> so right away, where did Simon go wrong, perhaps? Jesus even calls him out on it, lest he thinks he's such a good Pharisee. What sort of hospitality did Simon show to Jesus? Not great one. Yeah. I mean, he did invite him to eat. So it's not, again, I don't want to harp on Simon too much here. But Jesus points out, you know, if you think you've got it so perfect here, uh, I'm a guest in your home and you gave me no water to wash my feet. You gave me no ointment or perfume to anoint myself with. You gave me no greeting, and I want to be clear here. When, when he's talking about a kiss, it was very customary in those days when you had someone come over, you know, kind of think of the French a little bit. You know, when someone comes over, you go, you know, you know it, it's not quite that, but it, again, similar. Um, in that culture, it was very customary that you'd give a, a kiss of greeting. Paul even talks about the kiss of peace, right? I always laugh. Who's going to be the pastor to bring that back into worship post-COVID? The kiss of peace. <laughs> No one, at least not, not, I don't think. But you have this, this hospitality that is 
that is expected is would be understood as being not required, but kind of, you know, okay. It'd be like not offering a, a, a guest in your home who came over a glass of water, you know, have dinner, but, oh, you wanted something to drink, did you? You know, no one does that. They say, oh, let me get you a, a glass of water. So Jesus points out right away, your hospitality is not exactly perfect. Not terrible, but it's not perfect. And this woman, she is doing the very things that one who truly had an honored guest come into their presence would do. Wash their feet, anoint their head, give them a kiss. And so he called Simon out and then says to the woman, or says to Simon, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now there's a, a, I mean, just what a beautiful statement that is. You know, does Jesus minimize her sin? Does he say, well, you know, she really hasn't been that bad. <laughs> does he say, well, that was her old way of life, but she's come to her senses. No, he said, and that, did you have a, Exactly. So Joe brought out that the Pharisee doesn't have an understanding of his sin. And so he thinks by having Jesus over, he's kind of doing Jesus a favor, or at least he's, you know, it's not an honored guest. And that's what Jesus points out to him. You didn't treat me as you would, you know, if the high priest, for example, came to recline at your house, you'd have had it all set up, all ready to go, eyes dotted, T's crossed. And you would have made sure that no hospitality was lacking. Yeah, that's the implication when he, when he says to Simon, you know, you didn't do these things. Uh, but Jesus doesn't minimize this woman's sin. He doesn't say, don't be so judgmental, Simon. You know, and I think that's kind of the natural response that we're, we're accustomed to hearing a little bit in the 21st century, which is, well, hold on, Jesus loves sinners. Why are you, how are you going to judge me? Well, Jesus says her sins are many. Jesus doesn't say her sins are no big deal. And this is a key distinction, especially for us as American Christians that we, I think, struggle with because so often we want to hear in the way it's, it's kind of portrayed on the world is you're supposed to judge not lest you be judged. And yet we forget that, for example, in the, the, the account of when Jesus says, get the you know, plank out of your own eye, when your brother has a speck, you are to remember there was a plank in your eye and then get the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not to say ignore the speck. And so here's another example where Jesus does not minimize sin. Jesus doesn't say sin is no big deal. This woman isn't that bad. You should just, you know, let her do her. No. He says her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Uh, you're, we're reminded in this just short account that there is no such thing as a little sinner. There is no such thing as a little sinner. Oh. Well, I don't think that's exactly, Jesus isn't quite going that way. He, I mean, he answers to Simon. Yeah. But 
There are no little sinners, but there certainly are those who perceive they have little sin. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to illustrate here to Simon. As you, you kind of brought out, Simon, the Pharisee, he's on the same plane, the same level, has the same standing before God Almighty as this woman of the city. The difference is he thinks he's not that bad. And you think about how that crops up into our lives, that sort of thinking. And I'm not saying any of us have ever been perfect. We've all had moments where we are tempted to think, well, boy, I did make Bible study six weeks in a row. And I never killed anybody. That's right. Yeah. I'm glad those are our standards. Or boy, you know, I've, I've never had a, a moment really where I've left the church or, or had a moment of doubt. I've been faithful and a servant time and time again. You know, this other person, they just started coming. What's it matter what they think perhaps in a given situation? Because I've been here for 40, 50, 60 years. You start to think about how this plays out in our day-to-day life, and you realize how quickly we are tempted to turn a little bit into Simon the Pharisee. Quickly we are to sit there and say, well, boy, At least I'm not doing that over there. At least I'm not, you know, that guy, this person. And get tempted to kind of think, well, maybe I'm not a little sinner, but maybe I'm just like a mid-range sinner. The point here, yes, John. Yeah. Correct. (laughs) We're going to need a lot more than an hour, but (laughs) so the question was brought forth, you know, when you think about how this plays out in families and and truly that course is one of the the most relatable experiences, right? That all of us have, that there's different family dynamics. No one has a perfect family. And you think about all the different family dynamics and and how um, are we to treat those who you may know might be living as this woman was a sinful way, and yet you don't want to just excuse the sin, but you also don't want to cast them off either. And that's where it is. It is a balance. And I look, you know, again, like many things, it's a good idea to look to how Jesus handles such things. Does he welcome this woman? Absolutely. But again, does he say, ah, don't worry about it? No, he says, her sins, which are many, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And you think about this woman, what did we read at the start of this account? How did she come to Jesus? She heard he's at the Pharisee's house, comes where she knows there's going to be a large gathering of people. And dare I say, there's a high chance she may even have some clientele there in their midst. And she weeps. She humbly, and and in a positive sense, and humiliates herself, that is, humbles herself before her God, before the Son of God. And of course, that's exactly how Jesus meets us. You know, I I mentioned the parable of the prodigal son. How does the father receive that younger son? With open arms. He's searching for him. You know, there's part of it where you don't want to read too much into it, but probably 
one of the things that Jesus did by having dinner at that Pharisee's house is he knew that woman would be there. He knew what was in her heart, the contrition and the sadness and the sorrow and the grief and the pain of what her life and the sin in her life had resulted in. And so when she comes to him in, in repentance and weeping, quite literally weeping in the feet or at the feet of her Lord, um, God, every single time welcomes the sinner. Now he doesn't say stay in your sin. And that's the other part of this that you want to be clear about. This isn't to say, all right, I got my daily, you know, my weekly dose of forgiveness and now go off and sin some more. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter six, where, you know, the church in Rome said, well, if grace is good and grace increases when we sin, should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound or increase or multiply? And Paul's response to that is, by no means. And that's probably a pretty kind way to put it. You know, it's the no way, Jose. This isn't how we're supposed to go on living contrary to the will of God, contrary to God's desire for us. And yet, How do our lives go? Pretty sinfully. So you have this, this absolutely beautiful statement when he looks at the woman and says to her, your sins are forgiven. And in the Greek, this is the indication here is that it's in a, a, a uh, completed sense that they have been forgiven. They are gone. It's not they will be forgiven. It's not they were forgiven 10 minutes ago, but your sins are forgiven. They're in a state of forgiveness. You are in a state of forgiveness. And this causes a little bit of commotion at that dinner table. And so those who were with him at table, or those who were at table with him, began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, what a beautiful ending that is to that account that this woman who was tormented, I mean, quite literally tormented from her sin on account of Christ, because of Jesus, goes not in torment, but in peace. Goes not as one who is sinful in the eyes of God, but as one who is forgiven in the eyes of God. Uh, and this account really brings forth, and I should mention, this is actually the gospel reading for, I think it's the fourth Sunday after Pentecost. So that's five weeks from now. So we'll hear this this summer in our lectionary cycle for series C. This account brings forth some of the most, I think, poignant reminders for how God works. This account, let's be clear, is not about the woman. It's not about Simon the Pharisee. This account is about Jesus. But this is how Jesus works. This is how Jesus comes to his people. This is how Jesus responds in the face of repentance. That he takes even the ones the world would say have no business being near him. And he forgives their sin. But the other part of this that I'm struck by is still this Simon the Pharisee. You know, this, this guy who thought of himself as, if not righteous, pretty darn close to righteous, right? And you think about the course of human history 
and how easy it becomes for those who think they are righteous to be some of the most awful people to their neighbors. When you think you have all the right answers, all the right qualifications, all righteousness before God throughout human history, we can go through the list. If we want to start with the church, we could start there, right? There have been times where people, because of their perceived righteousness that they had in themselves, committed heinous acts, all because they thought themselves to be so righteous and completely forgot what Jesus came to do. They were, as Jesus would describe, those who feel like they were forgiven little. And so the love that they had for God and the love that they had for their neighbor became little. One of the most interesting things about the last probably four or five years is just how vitriolic society has seemed to become. How self-righteous, and it's not just in matters of the church, but whether it's politics, whether it's COVID, whether it's finance, whether it's international treaties, that people love to have an air of superiority right now. No one gets on cable news and says, I don't know. Everyone gets on there and says, this is the way it has to be, and any other way is foolish and stupid. I mean, think about how unloving people were at least tempted to be during this pandemic. You disagree with me on this? Well, I don't know if I'm going to, well, eat with you. <laughs> be a good example. All right? <laughs> so it's something that it's not just limited to the first century in Israel. It's something that still confronts us each and every day. And I think we need to watch and be more uh, mindful that we don't turn into, at times, Simon the Pharisee. And, and it, it's... We are all capable of being little Simons. And I will say it's a great reminder that based on circumstance, based on upbringing, based on whatever may have happened, we're also all not that far off from that woman either. Like many of the parables, and again, going back to the parable of the prodigal son, are you, you the younger brother or the older brother? And I think the correct answer is yes, you're both. Here in our sin, are we tempted to sometimes be like Simon and, and, and forget to cling on to the love of God and the forgiveness that he freely offers? Yes. And on the same hand, we're at times as openly and as blatantly sinful as that woman of the city. May not be that particular sin, but sinful nonetheless. And so I, I really think these 15 verses are some of them, one of the most beautiful accounts uh, in the entire gospels, because this isn't a parable. This was a woman living in Israel. This was a man living in Israel, having Jesus at his house. And to hear that proclamation, what a beautiful thing that is, because that of course is the proclamation that we receive. So before we start chapter eight, I'm gonna open up if there are any questions on the end of Luke seven here. Yes, Sue. I don't know if my mortgage company said your mortgage is forgiven. I'd probably love them. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, yeah. And I think we have to be careful. So the, the point is made, you know, this kind of seems weird that we're talking about love in the context of a money lender and a debtor and a creditor sort of relationship. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the point Jesus is making is not to get hung up on the particular situation of how we should feel about a, you know, a moneylender. I think what he's trying to point out to Simon is here's a straightforward example. He knew Simon was going to get the right answer. He wasn't trying to trick him. I think he was trying to, it's like the parable of the unmerciful servant, right? And, and uh, there you have Peter asked Jesus, you know, how many times should someone forgive their brother? You know, seven times or how about, you know, seven times seven and, you know, Jesus' point at that unmerciful servant is that, you know, forgiveness and, and the, the gratitude should be there no matter what, when we consider our own debt that's been repaid. And when we forget the gratitude and we forget what Jesus has done, it is so easy to not only love God little, but then to love little what he commands us to do, namely love our neighbors as ourselves. You know, I don't, I don't think Jesus is saying you need to go around loving your creditors, if they forgive a, a debt, I think he's using it more in the context of this woman displaying her affection and her, her love for quite literally God in the flesh. Do you want to add to that or maybe? Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's where, again, with with a parable, we want to, what, what is, yep, and what he's pointing out to Simon is that she treated him as one would treat one that loves someone else that comes into their home or is in their presence. That's where Simon, while he invited him to eat, didn't show him a ton of great hospitality, a ton of love, you know, that he didn't wash his feet, didn't anoint him, didn't, you know, give him a, a kiss of greeting. I don't think, I want to get too hung up on the fact that what Jesus is you know, saying is that a debtor loves the creditor if the creditor forgives the sin. Of course, the creditor, if we're going to take it even further, did the debtor do anything to deserve that debt forgiveness? No, he first received that love, that forgiveness, that debt being taken away from his account by the creditor and only because the creditor deemed, you know, it is something that should be done. And Steve, were you going to, and then we'll go in the back. Yeah. Oh, yes. I would say absolutely what she's doing here is showing a repentant heart. Correct. And I, I would, I would absolutely say she comes before him with a repentant heart and you see the tears. And I think that's, that's why it, it, it says, you know, it's not that she stood behind him at his feet weeping. And you think about how did, uh, you know, use uh, David for an example, when, when he was repentant, he tore his clothes and wept. Yeah. All right. Back.
Yeah. In fact, I have the opposite reaction when he sees literally God at work. So the comment was made that the last phrase in, in 50 there, your faith has saved you, go in peace, really highlights the difference between the two people here, the woman versus Simon the Pharisee. And I, what is Simon's response when he sees God at work? It's, well, if this was the son of God, or if the, sorry, was a prophet, if he was a prophet, he'd know better than to do this. And again, that contrary to fact statement in Greek means uh, that's a statement that I don't believe he is this thing. He is not a prophet because he's doing this very thing where this woman in faith came to Jesus and quite literally on her knees, humbled him, herself before him uh, with a repentant heart and trusted that this servant of God would not deal with her unjustly, but would quite literally save her from her sins. Yep, bud, and then we'll go over there. Uh, nervous. Yeah, the self-righteousness to Bud brought out that the self-righteousness is, is really the big hang-up for the Pharisees, that it's not about how good you've been when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. It's about, do you believe in me? And I'm reminded, and I don't have the exact quote, but it's from your Christianity where C.S. Lewis talks about, essentially it's this, not, you know, the better you see yourself before God, probably the further from God you are. The closer to God you are, the more wretched you realize you truly are. And I would say, you know, the more you realize you've been forgiven, the more you realize the cost of your, the more naturally you not only love God, but I would say love your neighbor because you realize you don't deserve any of it, that there's no error of deservedness in this, this woman. And so when we think about our own lives, you know, how many, again, how many times do we start to fall into that little trap of thinking, well, God, can't you just work this out for me? Because, you know, I, I've been in church every, every week. I kind of deserve this. Don't you think God? And when that doesn't happen, how quickly do we become, well, where's God at right now? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. There was a qu comment over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's where... You're absolutely right, Randy. It's, it's not like the 50 is, is nothing. Uh, and just like in the unmerciful servant, that, that smaller debt that is not free, that the person refuses to forgive, the one who had received the larger forgiveness, it's still not nothing. That one, I think, is about three months' worth of work. Here we've got 50 denarii, which is you know 50 days' work, roughly. That's not nothing. That's a month and a half. And if you think about, now they didn't do a five-day work week, but even on a six-day work week, you're looking at eight, eight weeks, you know, uh, of work plus it's not nothing 
And certainly it's not the sort of amount that a regular worker could just repay. But even so, I think as a Pharisee, they would acknowledge, okay, we've not been perfect, but what we've done is not that bad. But they struggled to see that because they thought they could earn their way out of that penalty. You know, 50 is not so inconceivable to try and pay back over time, you know, get a 30-year mortgage and, you know, uh, yeah, interest rates, all that. Yeah, no. But it, it's, it, it is critical that Simon does not see his own sinfulness while at the table of Jesus. Yes, Dennis. And happy anniversary, by the way. Yeah. 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 No, you're absolutely right. So Dennis's point uh, here for those listening on the radio was that it is truly a gift to be able to recognize your own sin and do so humbly. That's not so easy. And it's certainly, I think the teenage years are probably the go-to for many of us, but it probably wasn't so easy to see that uh, there's all sorts of pride in your teenage years, right? And even, even as you get wiser, pride still crops up from time to time, but it's not always so easy to, to see your own sin. And we may not always have that uh, capability to say in that moment, because of our own immaturity, here's, you know, my sinfulness before God. I, one of the, one of the great things about spiritual maturity is you realize all the more your own immaturity. And that's, you know, sounds counterintuitive, but it, it, it's absolutely not that, you know, again, the closer uh, you grow to God, the cl- closer you are to God, the more you realize how wretched we are. Look at any of the scriptures, any of the great men of the Bible, and you see outside of Jesus, all the rest of them are poor, miserable sinners. Every Sunday we confess here that we, most merciful God, we are sinful and unclean. Not just a little bit, not just at that point in our life five years ago, but today, seated in your house of worship, receiving your gifts, of word and sacrament, I sit here today unclean, sinful. And recognizing that is a tremendous, not only blessing, but one we shouldn't just kind of become numb to. And I think one of the things that can happen is we become, yeah, 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 I know I'm a poor, visible sinner. Jesus loves me and forgives me. Now, you know, now what? No. <laughs> think about that. Think about what uncleanliness you have brought before God and how he is taken that off, forgiven you, and that he sent Jesus exactly to do that for you. That's one of the beautiful things about the right of individual confession absolution. I've said it before at the seminary, my first year, they make you do it. And I thought, you got to be kidding. I'm going to sit here. And it's like, okay, you go through. And then all of a sudden you get to the point where you start saying what you're sorry for, what you want to do better. And you start going. And I mean, at least if you're like me, you're like, wow, I just got 30 minutes. I'm only on Tuesday, you know? And you realize what, when humility, I mean, true humility, just what it is, even as a seminarian, right? What it is that you need the forgiveness and the help of God. And then to hear those beautiful words that your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus. is just, uh, I mean, absolutely beautiful. Uh, and, and I certainly would encourage you, if you've never done that, uh, you don't have to do it all the time, but if you've never done it, it is a worthwhile practice. And it is something that I was glad, I was glad, put it this way, that they forced me into it when, when they did. All right.
Any other comments? And then we'll get briefly into uh, chapter eight. And I don't think we're going to get to the parable of the sower. So we'll get briefly into chapter eight here. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And with the 12 that were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, who from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, there's several really, really, I think, interesting things here that jump out that we don't always think about. But the first of them, before you can even get into the, the, the three women named and the others and the 12, um, what is Jesus doing at this point? Proclaiming good news of the kingdom of God. Now, if you turn back in your Bible, just a few pages to Luke 4, to where Jesus preaches in the synagogues and even where he is rejected in Nazareth. So we'll start at Luke 4, 18, where Jesus stands up in his hometown, goes to the synagogue, stands up, um, and they're all wondering, wait a minute, what's this guy doing? This is Joseph's son. We saw him grow up. Um, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to those oppressed, and the year of the Lord's favor, or the Lord's favorable year, depending uh, how you want to translate that. That's a quote from Isaiah that he um, says in the, in the synagogue that he's coming to proclaim good news, not to the righteous, but to the poor, the captive, the oppressed, the blind. And then you go later on into chapter four, and while well, he's in the synagogues, um, he says, if, starting at verse 43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So here we see Jesus continuing the purpose of his ministry, which is to proclaim good news, not to the self-righteous, but as we just saw acutely with that woman who was in Simon the Pharisee's house, but to the oppressed, the captive, the sinful. And the 12 were with him, and also some women. Now, were these women women of uh, high repute? Or what did, how are the women described? Women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And here we get Mary Magdalene, who would be one of the disciples and Jesus' closest friends, right? And what do we read of her? Well, she had seven demons had gone out from her. Now, again, there's some commentators who try to draw a direct connection because she's the first woman mentioned here with the woman who was just in Simon the Pharisee's house. Perhaps, but again, you got to be careful to not say what the text doesn't say. And so, you know, it's something that could it, could it be true? Maybe. But there's no textual evidence to say that's a direct link. Like the young man in Mark, you know, the young man in Mark who, the rich young man who asked Jesus what he must do. And he says, go sell all that you have to the poor and follow me. And he goes away brokenhearted. After Jesus is arrested in Mark, there's a young man who follows him just wearing a cloak. And even that's taken from him and says, is that the same young man? Maybe. But we can't just make direct assertions, 100% assertions 
without the text leading us to that. And this is another instance of that. But if you've ever heard that this woman in Luke 7 is Mary Magdalene, this is why. Because then when you read of the women who were healed from their infirmities or from evil spirits, Mary Magdalene is the first one mentioned. And then Joanna, and then Susanna, and many others. And they provided for them out of their means. Now, why is this kind of an interesting thing? How are Jesus and his disciples surviving? Charity, okay. House to house. Faith, okay, a little bit. Women. Their ministry is being funded and paid for by women. And why that's an important thing is do, you'll hear this sometimes, people say, well, you know, the gospels are kind of from a day of misogyny, sort of. Do women have a very highly valued place in the ministry of Jesus and his 12 um, disciples and then the apostles he would send out? Oh yeah. In fact, this wouldn't be happening without the support and the provision given by these women. Yep. Paul is making tense, yes. And certainly there were fishermen, right, amongst them and tax collectors and whatnot. Doctor, you know. Yes. But here you have a, a, a very direct reminder that this ministry, the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God, would not be possible without the help and support of these women. Now, when you think of it that way, I, I think we should probably have a little bit more appreciation for those there, at least the three mentioned, plus the many others, because they are literally providing the material needs of the disciples and of Jesus himself in this time of ministry. I am going to end there. We're at, I know, 1025, so we just a little early, only because the parable of the sower should probably be taken in its entirety. So we will pick back up, and it will not be me next week. I'll, there'll be a special guest, so I'll let you see who that is uh, when you get here next week. But are there any last questions from these kind of two sections? All right. Go in peace and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.